announcements I remember from the list which has disappeared. Somebody always gets it in their head that they need to straighten up my pulpit, and what disappears are the announcements. I know it wasn't you. You would have left them here. They were your printed announcements. <laughs> so anyway, I don't remember what any of the announcements are, but that's okay. I don't think there was anything pressing other than volunteers for the Chafer Conference, which comes up, and that just to remind people and to continue to announce that we had to change one of our main speakers. We're only having two speakers this year. Uh, Stephen Gare, who is with Sojourners Ministries, is a second-generation Messianic Jew, and he will be teaching on the topic, Is the Hebrew Bible Messianic? And that is a very important issue, as I've pointed out, and you have been taught on some of that. So he will have six sessions. And then the other speaker is now going to be uh, Dr. Mark McGinnis, who teaches Old Testament at Baptist Bible Seminary. And he will be teaching on how how to teach the Old Testament, basically moving from exegesis to exposition. Now, some of you may think, well, I'm not a teacher, and I'm not someone who's going to be teaching Sunday school or preaching, so what does that have to do with me? Well, what you will discover is you will learn a lot about all of these different passages that he uses as his examples for how to teach, and that will be a a tremendous uh, edification for everyone. So it doesn't matter if you're a pastor or if you're just a pew sitter, uh, you will learn a lot by listening to both of these men. And so that will be that will be the conference. So we need some volunteers who can help out in the kitchen and with other duties during that time. And so there'll be sign up sheets back in the fellowship hall. Trust what? No sh- they need to go online. Okay, I'm corrected. You need to go online and register as a conference volunteer. See, that's what happens when my crib sheets get thrown away. So I don't have the information. So uh, they need to go online, register for the conference, reference, register as a conference volunteer, and then you will somebody will get in touch with you about what you, what you need to do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord and ready to study the Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so very thankful that you have provided so much for us. You have given us a salvation that's beyond anything that we could imagine, that 
freely takes care of our sins, pays the penalty, forgives us, wipes the slate clean, and then abundantly blesses us in this church age. And he provides us with a spiritual life beyond anything we can imagine with privileges and spiritual assets that go beyond anything that we can imagine. And hardly any of us even uh, begin to appropriate the potential that we have in Christ. And Father, we thank you for your grace, your goodness to us, the fact that Christ paid the penalty, that there's nothing we do, nothing we can do, nothing we can add to the work of Christ, that we can't, uh, we can't sin in any way that destroys your grace, that your grace is provided for everything, taken care of everything, and your grace also has given us the power that we need in order to live the spiritual life. And as we study tonight and have been studying on the issue of spiritual warfare, the role of Satan in attacking the believer, tonight we get into the heart of the Old Testament revelation on undeserved suffering and how Satan is behind much of this. But yet the issue isn't attacking Satan or condemning Satan or wrestling with Satan. The issue is just faithful obedience to your word, walking by means of faith. And Father, we ask that you guide and direct our thinking tonight in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are talking about the topic of testing. So tonight we're going to look at how Satan cruises for victims. And that's really the imagery that we have in 1 Peter 5, 8, where Peter <clears throat> warns his recipients to be sober and to be vigilant. And vigilant. And those terms basically mean to uh, have clear thinking, unhindered thinking. The idea of being sober has that idea of objective thinking, unhindered by distractions, understanding the truth and what the reality of the situations in life are all about. And be vigilant means to be watchful, to pay attention, to be alert. And he says, why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. And we've studied who the devil is. We've studied the fall of Satan. We've studied the role of Satan in terms of the angelic conflict and how our lives intersect with understanding the angelic conflict, and we'll see an, an illustration of one aspect of that as we get into the book of Job. So Peter points out that the devil walks about like a roaring lion. He is stalking Christians. He's looking for victims, for those he can attack, for those he can test, for those that he can bring adversity into their life in order to uh, destroy their Christian testimony. And every one of us can become uh, victims of that. This is we're not seen or heard. We don't know whether he is behind some things or not because the realm of of the, the uh, angels is an invisible realm. And one of the problems that you have with a lot of the current teaching in some circles on spiritual warfare is, number one, they make it all about some kind of a f confrontation with Satan or the demons, and that's exactly the opposite of what the Scripture says. Even in this passage, we're told to resist him. It is a defensive term. It's not an offensive term. And we resist him how by being steadfast in the faith. 
And the phrase, the faith there, refers to not the act of belief, but it refers to what we believe. In other words, the doctrine that we believe, the teaching, the instruction of Scripture that we believe, that's what we stand uh, steadfast in. And this is exactly what we'll see in the illustration we look at from the Old Testament tonight, which is in Job. And in the second <clears throat> scene in Job that begins about verse 6, the Lord is in heaven, and the angels, including the fallen angels, have congregated before him. And the Lord begins to ask some questions of Satan, and he says, where, where have you been? What have you been doing? And so Satan answered and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. See, this is exactly what Peter is referring to. It is Satan going about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So he's out there uh, cruising the earth. So we started to look at what the Bible teaches about spiritual warfare, Satan, and suffering. We looked at the definition that this is the invisible spiritual warfare between the forces of Satan and the forces of God, and it's displayed in human history in what is called spiritual warfare. But as I pointed out recently, this is connected to uh, understanding the angelic conflict within the framework of a prehistoric trial. And we know that because in passages like Matthew twenty-five 41, we're told that the lake of fire has already been created for Satan and his angels. It's a perfect tense verb, meaning it is completed action. It was accomplished in the past. And it raises the question, if God has already tried and sentenced uh, the devil and his angels to the lake of fire, why aren't they there? And so <clears throat> there have been a few through the course of uh, uh, pro Protestant church history over the last 200 years or probably more who have understood uh, the significance of Job in terms of this, this trial framework for understanding uh, human history as the evidence against Satan in this trial. What's interesting is a lot of people recognize and they believe in the fall of Satan. They believe Satan was behind uh, the testing of Job, they understand what Satan does in blinding the minds of the unbelievers as well as seeking uh, to destroy the testimony of believers according to uh, what the passage we just read in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5. But they don't connect all the dots. Now, you know people like that. They, uh, whether it's in the political realm or whether it's just in taking care of everyday life, they believe a number of correct things. They know they ought to do a number of correct things, but they don't really put all the pieces together and come up with the right answer. And that's the way a lot of theologians are. They believe true things about Satan and about the fallen angels and about spiritual warfare, but they don't go a step further and put the dots together to understand this role in this uh, <clears throat> angelic trial. We went through the questions of who's Lucifer and Satan and how did he fall into sin, and now we're looking at this third question, how, did, how Satan attacks believers with undeserved suffering. We can somehow understand some things about deserved suffering, Deserved suffering connects the suffering to some 
decision that we have made, a bad decision, a sinful decision, and so we see that it's something we deserve. But undeserved is a is an arena of suffering where there's no apparent connection between the suffering and any action or any failure or any sin on our part. We don't see the reason for that particular suffering. Now, when we get into the New Testament, it's always interesting to see how the New Testament fills out the picture that is set forth in the Old Testament. In James chapter 5, we're reaching the end of the epistle of James, which is a great epistle. Luther didn't understand it. He called it a right straw epistle. And what he meant by that was it's just a bunch of hay and straw and there's nothing substantive there. He didn't understand it. And the reason he didn't understand it, the reason Calvin didn't understand it, the reason a lot of people don't understand the book of James is because they're, they're locked into a false theological system of lordship salvation, and so they misinterpret a lot of it. But James is a unified book. What you'll read among most lordship people, most commentaries, is it's the New Testament counterpart of the Psalms, it's just, I mean, of Proverbs. It's just a bunch of loosely connected wisdom sayings. But that's just hogwash. Uh, it has great order. The order is there's an introduction, and it concludes with a topical st- sentence that describes the body, like a three-point sermon that we have to be uh, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And those are the three divisions within the epistle of James. And then when we get to the middle of James 5, it comes back to the main theme. The main theme is introduced in the first chapter, in the first um, in verses 2 through of chapter 1, and it has to do with the importance of endurance in testing, endurance in trials, because it is only then that we apply the doctrine that's in our soul. And we'll look at those verses in just a second, but when we come to the conclusion, uh, James states, my brethren, take the prophets. In other words, look at Old Testament prophets. James, like First Peter, was written to Jewish background believers. It was probably the first epistle uh, written in the New Testament. And he said, take the prophets. In other words, let's look at the prophets as an example. They spoke in the name of the Lord, which means that they were divinely inspired, as an example of suffering. These prophets suffered and it was undeserved suffering, and they demonstrated patience. And so we have the Greek word here, makrothemeo. Makro means long, like macro in English, something big as opposed to micro. And thumeo has to do with uh, anger or suffering, and it's the idea of long suffering, the idea of patience, of waiting a long time. And from this we get uh, sort of a misunderstanding, and you'll hear the phrase, the patience of Job. Well, it's not really the patience of Job. This is the last time for a few verses that you see macrothemeo. In 5.11, James returns to the theme of the epistle, which is endurance. That's what he introduces in James chapter 1. You have to endure, and you have to endure in three areas. You have to endure in being quick to hear the word of God and to apply it, to hear it and to do it. Second, you have to be 
uh, slow to speak. You have to persevere in learning self-discipline over your tongue and the sins of the tongue. And third, you have to learn self-discipline in the area of mental attitude sins, and that's under the topic of being slow to anger. So when he comes to the conclusion, he returns back to using this word hupomoneo as the verb and hupomone as the noun, which means endurance, hanging in there, persevering. He says in verse 11, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. And that's the verb. You have heard of the perseverance of Job, not the patience of Job, but the perseverance of Job. He endured to the end. He stumbled a little bit along the way as he's trying to get an answer from God as to why he suffered. Uh, And he found out that that was a question he shouldn't be asking. Why, when that question why is addressed to God, is often not only incorrect, but if you push it, you'll lead yourself into a spiritual trap out of which you may not come. So it's always dangerous to ask God why, because God often has the same response to you and to me, and that is, you couldn't understand it if I told you, so do what I told you to do, and hang in there, and you'll eventually be rewarded and come to a better understanding of things. So James says, indeed, we count them blessed who endured. Uh, You have heard of the endurance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. That is the end result of the testing of Job, which was undeserved, demonstrates that even in the midst of that, God was compassionate and merciful. Mercy is the application of God's grace to a situation. Grace is the um, aspect of God's love that indicates his undeserved or unmerited favor Mercy is grace in action. It is God's grace toward someone in specific situations. Now, at the beginning of James, in the introduction, James addresses it, my brethren, that tells us right away that James, just as the conclusion is addressed to my brethren, that James is talking to believers. When you get into James 2.14 and following, and it starts talking about Uh, faith and works, people get confused on that and think that the subject there is how to get saved. And if you're really saved, that you have works. That's lordship salvation. It's not talking anywhere in here about how to get saved because the people he's addressing are believers. He's talking to believers about how to experience phase two salvation, the salvation where we learn to Uh, exercise power over the sin nature. It's about spiritual growth in times of testing. It is not about how to become uh, justified at the cross. So it is a second category of justification brought in in chapter 2, which is a a demonstration before uh, before God uh, of the uh, justification of his righteousness in our sanctification. So he says, my brethren, this is the command to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. We are to add it all up. It's the word hegeomai, same word used for imputing. It's an economic term. And we're to add up all the circumstances 
draw a line and reach our sum, and the sum is always perfect joy. We have joy because God is in control, and whatever the test, all things work together for good to those who are called uh, according to God's purpose. Uh, count it joy. Why? Because you know it's a causal participle there, because you know that the testing of your faith, and the word there for testing is dokimas, which are from dokimazo, which means to evaluate something, to test your, the quality of something. And so the test is a test to test the quality of your, of your doctrine. So you've studied, you've learned a few things in Bible class, you've learned a few things and you've applied a few things, and now you're going to hit a couple of speed bumps in life to give you the opportunity to test, to apply what you learn. It's a pop quiz. And a lot of people fail those pop quizzes because they've bought the lie that is popular among evangelicals, and that is that that you're going to have a wonderful, happy, joyful life just because you believed in Jesus. And what we learn in the Scripture is that God has great joy for us, but that doesn't mean that our circumstances are necessarily going to be wonderful and enjoyable. Uh, Jesus said, my joy I give to you, and he said it the night before he went to the cross, and we know that he had already suffered immeasurably just wrestling with the issues uh, before him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was overwhelmed by uh, by his uh, emotion in anticipation of bearing our sin on the cross. So, because you know that the testing of your faith, the evaluation of your faith produces endurance, not patience, endurance. That there's, this is how you get from point A to point to B to C to D as you grow in the Christian life, that your faith produces, the testing of your faith, the evaluation of your faith produces endurance. Without testing, there's no evaluation. Without testing, there's no growth. So that growth is necessary, and it produces endurance. And then let endurance have its, and it's not perfect work. That perfect in English indicates flawlessness. It's the Hebrew word teleos, which indicates maturity and completion, bringing you to the end result, which is what the illustration uh, about James says at the end. He uh, remember in James 5.11, we read, you have heard of the endurance of Job and seen the end, same word, the end intended by the Lord, the end result, which is the maturation process. So let endurance have its uh, maturing work, completing work, that you may be com- uh, mature and complete, lacking nothing. And then, of course, the next verse in James 1.5 says, but if anyone lacks anything, let him ask of God. And so that's a prayer promise, and people think, well, that means that if I'm having trouble in anything, I'll just ask God, and he'll give me what I need. I tried that on a chemistry and algebra final when I was a junior in high school. It might have worked on the chemistry final, but I I made, even though I had a B minus average, I made a 49 on the algebra final. I'd spent all my time studying for the chemistry final. And in HISD in those days, if you made less than 50 on your final, you automatically failed the course, no matter what your average was. You could have had an A average, but if you made a 49 or less on the final, you flunked the course. I was 16. When my dad was 16, 
he was tutoring calculus at the University of Houston, and I was taking algebra over for the second time. I, I didn't get that math gene. It, somehow it disappeared. And uh, I found out that James 1.5 isn't talking about that kind of a prayer. <clears throat> when it says lack, if you lack anything in James 1.5, that's talking about if you don't understand how to pass the test, God will give you the wisdom through his word so that you will learn how to pass the test. That's what James 5 is. 1.5 is. It's a promise that God is going to give you the information you need to be able to pass these spiritual tests. So James is all about the importance of testing, and we're reminded of another verse in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that talks about testing. And in verses 1 through 10 of 1 Corinthians 10, we won't take time to look at it, we have a reminder of what the Israelites went through in the wilderness and all of the uh, testing that they went through. They didn't have food, they didn't have water, they had they grumbled and they complained, all these things. And, and um, then Paul concludes by saying, now all these things that happened to them in the wilderness, see, that's why you have to study the Old Testament because the New Testament is constantly referring back to it. And if you don't know the, New Te- the Old Testament and don't read it, then basically you don't understand what the New Testament is talking about about 40% of the time. Uh, now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. So, once again, Paul is saying you need to know the Old Testament because they're there for us, church-age believers, for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands, you think you've arrived spiritually because you're a member of the church and you have all these blessings that we've been studying in Ephesians on Sunday morning. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then we have our verse, no temptation, that is same word that we have in James, no testing has overtaken you except such as is common to man. The same categories of testing apply to every one of us. Uh, The same category of testing that Job went through applies to us. And over and over again, Jesus went through every category of testing and demonstrated that he was sinless. He didn't succumb to the to, the, to failing the test as Adam did. And so this is common to everyone. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able. Now let's stop there a minute. And one of the reasons is, is because you hear silly people with absolutely no Bible teaching whatsoever in their life come up and they'll, they'll encourage you. You're going through a hard time and they say, well, uh, you're not going to be... Uh, tested beyond your ability, so you know you can get through it. No, that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is God's not going to test you beyond your ability because your ability is in your walk by the Holy Spirit, and all of the problem-solving devices, the spiritual skills that are identified in the New Testament are there for you to use. It's not saying, oh, um, you know, I'm going through this, so it's not going to be too hard for me. No matter what it is, I can overcome it just by whatever I have. 
No, it's talking about the fact that the potential is in what God has given you already as a believer in the church age, the assets he's given you, the skills that he's given you. But if you haven't studied the word, if you don't have those skills mastered in your life, then you're going to fail the test. And it will be difficult for you, maybe too difficult for you, because you don't know how to handle it. But it's not beyond your ability because you failed to develop your ability. So that's what this is talking about. God knows what he's revealed to you, and he knows the skills he's provided for you, and he's not going to test you beyond that. But if you have failed to develop those skills, then you're going to fall apart in the testing. But that's what the next section talks about. But with the testing will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Not the way of escape so you can get out from under it, but the way of escape so that you can hang in there, endure it through the testing. The testing may last a day, it may last a month, a year, a decade. It may last the rest of your life as you go through this. And God is testing you to see if you're going to apply the promises and the skills that are revealed in his word so that he is glorified. Now, I wanted to just give you a few verses that relate to different types of testing that we find, especially in Job, but a couple of other places in the Old Testament. First of all, Job, Job 5, 7 says, Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. If you've ever been around a, a charcoal grill or you've sat around a campfire at night and you've been sitting there and the fire's going out and you start stoking it with uh, uh, another stick or something to try to build the flames up again, all of a sudden you'll see all these sparks start going and they automatically go up because heat rises. That's just basic physics. And so what, um, what Job is saying is, is you can't avoid trouble. You can't get out of this life without facing a certain amount of adversity. Now, you may sit here in a congregation and look across the aisle, and you may look at somebody and say, they just have a wonderful life. Look at at the prosperity that God's given them. Look at all that's been supplied them. They have a great life. They, uh, They haven't gone through anything tough like what I'm going through. And yet what I've discovered over the years is once you get to know most, nearly everybody, they have gone through some kind of heartbreak or terrible hardship that you can't even imagine. And it may involve their family. Maybe I, I, I knew a man who was an elder at a church uh, years ago, and uh, he seemed to be very prosperous and very successful. And I found out later that he had made and lost several fortunes over the course of his life. He has been almost bankrupt two or three times and had gone through really, really difficult times. This happens to everybody. Sometimes it's it's health. And you just can't look at somebody and uh and at, at church or in many other social uh social events and recognize the heartache, the difficulties that they may be encountering just to get out of bed every single day. We all face trouble and adversity. Job 14.1 confirms that man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Isn't this positive? 
You know, this is the kind of thing you don't hear in a lot of churches today because they want everybody to go home feeling good, feeling warm. Well, we do have something to feel good about, and that is that God has provided us the solution to face the difficult times in life. Now, a lot of times we don't understand why things happened. A classic example of undeserved suffering, although some might say it was partially deserved, is Joseph. If Joseph hadn't bragged or talked about his dreams to his brothers, he wouldn't have angered them and made them jealous and resentful of him. But he really didn't deserve, do anything to deserve uh, either being murdered, which was their original intent was to murder him. And then they threw him in a pit and they were just going to leave him there to die. And then some, uh, 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 some traitors came along and they sold him into slavery and he was eventually sold as a slave to... A, uh, an official in the uh, Pharaoh's administration in Egypt, and then he was unjustly charged with trying to seduce uh, his owner's wife, and he was put in prison. And he went through all of this suffering. Eventually, God had him released of prison. He was raised to a high level in the administration himself. And then when his brothers, who had sold him into slavery, showed up, they were fearful that he was going to seek revenge on them. And the mature response from him was in Genesis 50, verse 20. But as for you, you meant it for evil. You may have hated me. You may have wanted to destroy me and to kill me. And you may have been totally uh, motivated by your sin nature, but God meant it for good. God was in control. Even of all those dark times I went through, God was still in it uh, for developing that which was good. And we know all things work together for good. God is working all things together for good. And so he said God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And then in in Job, we have a a statement in Job 4.8, even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. This is self-induced misery. This is when you bring divine discipline upon yourself, and this is deserved suffering. And it's echoed in Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And then in Psalm 103, we have a great promise that God has not dealt with us according to our sins. He may take us through divine discipline. He may take us through some extremely difficult consequences as a result of our own rebellion and our own sin, but he doesn't completely deal with us on the basis of our sin. He doesn't punish us according to our iniquities. He is still gracious and kind to us, even when he has to discipline us, it's never to the extent that we that we deserve. And so uh, James comes along and emphasizes that Job is the example of the kind of endurance that should be exhibited in the life of the believer. Now, one thing that's interesting is Job is only mentioned one time in the New Testament, and that's here in James chapter 5. And that's because it fits perfectly with the theme of this epistle. When we go back to the Old Testament in Ezekiel, we find out that Job had a very high reputation among the prophets. Now, he wasn't Jewish. He lived at a time that was roughly equivalent to 
to that time of maybe the end of Jacob's life, the end of the patriarchs. Maybe it was in that period between Genesis 50 and Exodus chapter 1. But he, he, is a, he lives in the land of Uz, and Uz is one of the descendants of, of Esau. And so this would place him in that basic time period of the patriarchs, but he's not Jewish. There's no mention of Israel. There's no mention of the covenant. There's no mention of Jerusalem. It is all about this Gentile believer uh, from that patriarchal period of the Old Testament. And Ezekiel, much, much later, Ezekiel around 600 uh, B.C., which would be somewhere almost... Uh, 2,000, 1,800 years or so after the time of Job says, uh, maybe not quite that long, maybe about 1,500 years after the time of Job says, Son of man, when a land sins against me, referring to the Israelites, and and, uh, he says, it's not the land that sins, it's the people of the land, it's figure of speech. When a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. That's divine discipline on a national scale. And specifically, it's outlining the fulfillment of the five cycles of discipline that God had had laid out for Israel if they broke the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, in Leviticus 26. And then he says in Ezekiel 14, 14, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it. Now, this is an allusion to the same principle that we saw with with Lot in Sodom, the principle of blessing by association. Remember, Adam walked walked God through this whole scenario. If there were 60 men, righteous men in in, uh, Sodom, would you still judge them? If there were 50, if there were 40, if there were 10... And and God said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take Lot and his family out, and then there won't be any righteous people in Sodom, and I'll destroy it. So this is the same principle of blessing by association. But what, what God is saying is even if Noah, a Gentile, Daniel, who is the prophet Daniel, who is in Babylon at this time, and Job, who is was a Gentile, Three mature believers who exhibited high levels of experiential righteousness, even if those three men were in it, that is in uh, Judah at the time, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. So that tells us again that Job was very righteous and mature. And this is where the book begins. Turn with me to the first chapter of Job. In the first chapter of Job, we learn that God's opinion of Job is extremely high. He has not done anything deserving of any divine discipline. And this is stated in the very first verse. We are not left with any doubts whatsoever as to Job's spiritual condition. The writer of Job says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. Four qualities that describe a spiritually mature man. Now, Job was probably the first book 
inscripturate. Now, some people would say that it, it happened before uh, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, but it wasn't written down until later. I don't know. I tend to be of the opinion it was written down very early because it answers the question that is foundational for most people, and that is, why am I suffering? Why is there undeserved suffering in the world? And so the first book would be, in my opinion, addressing this foundational question. And three times in Job 1.1, in Job 1.8, and then again in Job 2.3, God puts his stamp of approval on Job's life. Three times he has said, this is quoted, he's blameless, he's upright. Blameless doesn't mean he's sinless. It just means that he has no sins for which he's culpable. He is not living a profligate life. He is walking with the Lord. He is walking in obedience as best as he can. And when he sins, he's confessing his sin, and he is uh, continuing to walk with the Lord. He's upright, indicates experiential righteousness, which is confirmed by Ezekiel, as we just saw. He fears God which indicates that he's he's become wise because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and he shuns evil. He does not uh, get involved in evil. Now, remember, evil begins in the Old Testament with idolatry. Again and again and again, you have evil being described starting with idolatry. It is disobedience and disloyalty to the creator God of, of the universe. And so God makes it very clear, Job has done nothing wrong, nothing deserving of any suffering. And so as we look at this, we're told about his life. He's got a wonderful life. He has seven sons and three daughters that were born to him. So he has 10 children. It seems like they are adult children. Each of them has their own house. They, uh, they may live in a compound. I've always thought that when it talks about the fact that when they had their special day that this might be their birthday, but I have been reading in some other commentaries and some suggest that this was some sort of uh, feast time. And uh, so in the course of 10 days, each day, one day after another, they would go from one uh, sibling's house to the next sibling's house uh, until the conclusion, and then they would wrap up this this uh, 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 feast time, time of celebration of their life and all that God had given to them. And so uh, that could be. All it says is that uh, when it came to the days of feasting had run their course. So that indicates to me that this was a, a 10-day period uh, where they carried out these celebrations, describes his his uh, possessions, and concludes that he is he is the Bill Gates, the Jeff Bezos of his generation. He has more wealth than anybody else anywhere in creation. He and his reputation goes throughout the world. He lives in an area of us is identified as maybe in Moab. Uh, maybe in the area of modern Jordan, but he is con- his reputation has gone out throughout Egypt and Arabia and Chaldea, and people know that he is wealthy. That's why what happens, they target him. We see the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans target him to rob him of his wealth, and that's because people knew that that he was extremely, uh, extremely wealthy, and so. 
when the days of feasting had run their course, we read in verse 5, that Job would send and sanctify them. So he's got a spiritual priority. He's not focusing on their, their, uh, 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 their partying, but they, he wants to make sure that spiritually they're taken care of, and so when it's over with, they have burnt offerings and sacrifices for all of them because he says, it may be that my son's have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job regularly. Now then we get this unique episode in Scripture where God pulls back the veil of what goes on in heaven. And suddenly we're given the ability to look at heaven and to see this convocation that occurs. It's referenced several places. It's referenced in the Psalms. It's referenced in 1 Kings 22. And all the sons of God come before God. Now, the term sons of God is a technical term for the angels, the holy angels and the fallen angels. They're all individually created by God. Angels don't make baby angels, so they're not uh, sons of other angels. They are all directly created by God, and so they're all called sons of God. And in verse 8 we read, Now there was a day or a time when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, which means the accuser, this is referring to Halal ben Shahar, who we studied earlier, that's the Hebrew name for Lucifer, the son of the dawn. And I mentioned to you last time that current scholarship has discovered that that Halal doesn't just mean... Uh, uh, a bright and shining light. It's not. It, it could be, as I walked you through the lexicons of the last hundred years, it could refer to the morning star, but over the last 30 years, another term has entered into it and is now listed as a secondary meaning to Hillel, and that is the crescent moon. And so you have this angel who sins against God, whose symbols are the morning star and the crescent moon. And we see both of those linked together in the symbology for Islam, and it's on many of the flags, as I pointed out last week. You have a crescent moon and a star on, on many Islamic nations, and I am convinced that Satan, who's behind all idolatrous systems, he is behind every false religion. That's clear from both Deuteronomy and from First uh, Corinthians. But I think that that Allah is just another name for Satan, and that all Muslims they would regret, they would resent this, they would hate this, they would accuse me of all kinds of hate speech. But they're worshiping Satan. But God says that anybody who's worshiping any idol in the Old Testament, is worshiping a demon, that there's a demon behind Zeus, there's a demon behind Apollo, there's a demon behind all of these gods and goddesses in the pantheons of the ancient world. So this is, shouldn't be a surprise to anyone who studies the Bible. So the Lord says to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan says, well, I've been going to and fro on the earth. I've been walking around looking and um, looking to see who I can attack. So then the Lord says, now this almost sounds like, well, with, with a friend like the Lord, who needs enemies? The Lord says, well, have you taken a look at, at my servant Job? Let's point Job out for a minute and take a look at him 
And have you considered him? There's none like him on the earth. He's blameless and upright, one who fears God and shuns evil. This is the, I don't know what happened there. See what, we'll go back to, um, well, the whole program, there it is. For some reason, it just slipped off. He goes, he, he, he wants, he points him out. And then Satan's answer is interesting. He says, you know, d- that that it's translated as Job fear God for nothing, and what it means is Job's not obedient for for no reason. Job's obedient because you're doing such good things for him. He's he's got a great life. It's wonderful. All his children are obedient and they love him, and he's wealthier than anybody. You've given him so much. Of course, he worships him. You've bribed him. You're 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 you've paid him off. And so you put this protection around him, you've given him everything, and, you know, if you took this away, that's verse 11, then, then he would surely curse you, and that's what we see in Job 1.12. And the Lord says to Satan, well, we're going to let you test him a little bit. All that he has is in your power, only don't lay a hand on his person. In other words, don't take his life and don't take his health, but you can, t- you can take everything else away from him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And so then we come into uh, the first, this is the first area of testing for Job. And he loses all of the details of life, all of the things that we think makes life meaningful. He loses it. He loses all of his children. He loses all of his wealth. He loses all of his possessions. And as a result of that, um, Satan thinks that he will curse God. In verse 15, there is a raid of the Sabaeans, and they take his oxen and his donkey, they, donkeys, and they raid them, and they kill all but one of the servants, so this servant can run back and tell Job what happened. Then, at another location, fire comes down from heaven that burned up all of his sheep and all but one of his servants. So there's a tremendous loss of life. I mean, he didn't have just a few servants. It was the equivalent of an army. Remember, Abraham had a huge army of servants that he that he had organized for, for defense, and he used them against the uh, kings of Amraphel and Keterleomer, the kings of the east. Well, this would be the same thing. He would have a huge number. He probably had... Uh, a larger number than Abraham. He might have had six, seven, eight hundred servants, and all of these servants are killed except one in each location to be able to tell the story. So in verse 16, we learn that he lost his sheep and all but one of his servants. And then in verse 17, it describes an attack by the Chaldeans. They're coming from the area of Babylon. And they divide up their, their, like a military operation. They split into three bands and hit simultaneously. And they then come along and rustle all of the camels and take them with them and kill all except one of the servants. That's verse 17. And then in verse 18, we learn about uh, the death of all ten of his children. They're having a great celebration, and suddenly this great wind comes up. Now, it's not a tornado or cyclone. They don't have those in that part of the world. Uh, This huge windstorm came up, and it hit their house that they were in, and it collapsed on itself, and it killed all of his children, 
and all the servants there, and only this one servant was left alive. And, and within about five minutes, all of these messengers come and tell Job, and he's hit with the absolute loss of everything in his life except for his wife. And we see his response then in verse 20. It's just demonstration of grief, which is typical in the ancient world. And he stands up, tears his robe, shaves his head, fell to the ground, and what? He worshiped God. Now, we see this word also used in a, in a uh, similar context, not a context of suffering, but a similar context after uh, Abraham has uh, sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac. And after he finds Rebekah, what does he do? He bows his head and worship. It is prayer. It is thanksgiving. It is uh, turning everything over to the Lord, casting his cares upon the Lord. But we're told some of the content of his prayer, and this is what he says to God. He recognizes that everything he had was from God. And that's what we have to recognize, that everything we have comes from God. Whatever is nearest and dearest to you is from God. God gave it to you, and God can take it away from you. And until people learn that, you're going to become too attached to what you have, to your children, to your grandchildren, to your parents, to your friends, to your success, to your job, to your business, to your money, whatever it is, you're going to become more attached to that than you should, but it's a gift of God, and Job recognizes that here, and he said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and naked I will return there. I will leave this life with nothing. The Lord gave me everything I have. And the Lord took it away. It's his privilege. If he had the privilege to giving it, he had the privilege of taking it away. This is, this is the lesson Jonah has to learn at the end of Jonah. When he, he's so mad that God is, is going to save all these Assyrians, and, and then God teaches him through the, the, the gourd plant that grows up and, uh, and gives shade to Jonah, and he's so thankful to that. And then he sent a worm to devour the the plant, and the plant uh, died, and he lost his shade, and he got mad. And God's saying, why do you have any right to get mad? You didn't do anything to get it. You didn't do anything to deserve it. And this is what Job understands. It shows his maturity. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. So he passes the test. The test was that Satan said, if you take it all away, he's going to curse you. And that didn't happen. He continued to trust God. And so Satan comes back, and we have another day. Sometime later, we don't know when, there's a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, the language here indicates some kind of an official gathering or convocation or assembly, like a trial like what you would have in a courtroom. And so now the Lord is going to ask Satan some questions. It's like a cross-examination, and he's going to see how the evidence has been developing. And so he, uh, Satan comes and presents himself before the Lord, and the Lord says, well, where, repeats the same situation. Where do you come from? I've been going back and forth 
around the earth. I've been cruising the earth looking for somebody to test and to evaluate. And so again, the Lord says, well, let's take a look at my servant Job again. And for the third time, we're told that he's blameless and upright and that he fears God and shuns evil. And God says, still he holds fast to his integrity. He hasn't collapsed. He hasn't cursed me, although you incited uh, me against him to destroy him without cause. And so um, Satan says, well, you wouldn't let me touch him, so let me touch him. And the Lord says to him uh, down in verse 6, Behold, he's in your hand, but spare his life. You can take his health, but not his life. It's interesting that to this point, nothing is said about his wife. But his wife, who clearly doesn't understand spiritual things like Job does, comes along and with friends like this who needs enemies. She comes along, and she's part of the test, and she says, you still hold fast to your integrity? You're still going to trust God? Just curse God and die. Let God take your life and curse God and die. And he said to her, you, he, he, notice he doesn't call her a fool. He says, you speak like a foolish woman. He is not going to judge her. He says, you speak like one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? Notice he's also exhibiting good husbandly leadership. He said, should we accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So he passes the second test. And then the third test that comes along is his three friends. And with friends like this, you don't need a lot of enemies. It's not that the friends are necessarily wrong. It's just that they're not right. They have a narrow view of adversity and suffering. They think only in terms of the categories of deserved suffering and that Job, therefore, must have done something to deserve suffering. So each one comes from that particular angle, um, and we go through that, and I'm not going to go through the whole book, book of Job here. And Job keeps getting into this debate with them and arguing that I, I've done nothing wrong. I haven't cursed God. I haven't committed any sins. I haven't done any evil. Uh, I'm not deserving of this. I just want to make a case before God. But in that, we see his faith. And there's a couple of passages that I want to point out here that you should be aware of. Job 13:15 is a verse that if you've never memorized any other verse in life, this is one you ought to memorize. Because if you hit really tough suffering and adversity, what you need to remember is what Job said. Though he slay me, though God take me through the worst suffering I can ever go through in life, though I lose everything, including my own life, yet will I trust him. His trust in God was more real and more significant than all the details in life, than everything he loved, everything he enjoyed in life, all the details in life. What mattered to him was his relationship with God and his trust in God, because that's what life is all about. Without God, everything else becomes a, becomes a God, becomes an idol. And with God, everything has its proper place and its proper role. And so you ought to remember Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. 
Even so, he says, I will defend my own ways before him. I'm not worthy of this. So he starts to uh, succumb to their rationale. He says, I don't have anything to deserve. I need to have my day in court with God. Why can he say all of this? Why is he so firm? And this is another interesting passage. He understands something that a lot of scholars today say nobody in the Old Testament should have understood. And this is one of the things that has always convinced me that these great spiritual heroes of the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, uh, Job, Samuel, David, they knew more then the scripture reveals to us that they know. How did they know it? I don't know. God may have revealed it to them at different times. There may have been uh, other uh, oral tradition that uh, that's what the Jews say. They've elevated that, of course, to the level of written tradition. But there was clearly other information that we're not privy to that they knew about. And part of that was the idea that there was a coming redeemer and second, that there was a resurrection. And that's not, we don't know where, where he got this information, but this is, if, if we're right, and I think we are, this is the first book written in the Old Testament, then clearly by the time of Abraham, we know that Abraham understood the doctrine of resurrection because that's why he was willing to, to uh, sacrifice Isaac because he knew that God would raise him from the dead, that God had promised that it was through Isaac his seed would be named. So he understood the doctrine of resurrection. So Job has this confident faith because he knows that my Redeemer Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. God is going to provide a Redeemer. He understood that, and that was the rock on which his faith was based. And he said, after my skin is destroyed... After I go in the grave and I rot and my skin is gone, that in my flesh, that means resurrection, in my flesh, I shall see God. So this tells us he had tremendous, tremendous faith. Now, ultimately what happens in Job is God does come to talk to Job. And he shuts Job down. He starts asking him all these rhetorical questions, starting in chapter 38. Well, how did this happen? Can you explain this to me? How did the stars get in the sky? How was the earth created? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth and the sons of God sang with joy? And and as a result of asking all of these rhetorical questions in chapters 38 and 39, then when we get to the end, Job just shuts his mouth and he repents. He realizes that he just spoke uh, completely out of turn and that he was arrogant and that he was completely, uh, completely wrong in everything that he that he said in terms of trying to make his case before God. And this is seen in Job forty, verse eight, where he says, uh, "Would you?" <clears throat> Um, God says to him, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? And Job's response comes later, and he says, I condemn myself. So he recognizes that he was wrong, and I've changed my mind in dust and ashes. And so finally he passes that third test. So this is the warning that we have in uh, 
James chapter 5, to endure in times of testing because we too will receive a reward. And so that takes us right back to 1 Peter 5, 8, that we are to resist him. How do we resist the devil? By applying the word of God in our life, by taking a stand for the truth of God's word, steadfast in the faith, because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance from James chapter 1, uh, verse 3. Because we know that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. These are not unique to you. As unique as you may think they are, uh, they're not whatever you go through. Everybody else goes through something similar, different categories that God designs in terms of testing us. And so next time we'll wrap up that little section and then get on into the significance of this suffering in our lives. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be reminded of all that you've given us, all that you've provided for us, and that, like Job, that we can trust you and say that though you slay me, though you take everything away from us, yet we will trust you. We will never give up. We will never fail. We will trust you. We will endure and always glorify you in everything that we say, think, and do. Father, challenge us with what we've learned tonight. In Christ's name, amen.